0: They said, nothing to no one, for they were afraid. The end. If there's a worse ending in the gospel, I don't know of it. There ought to be a way to tie this gospel up, and people have tried. So in your Bible, you see a longer version. It's the writer's way of saying, that didn't go well. Let's finish this. But in the shorter version, is a powerful message. I want to talk to you about that. We've been talking about faith and doubt. Last week we talked about what doubt looks like and how the people who have the doubts are the ones that actually are followers of Jesus and and not somebody else. And doubt isn't something we often choose. You say, I just don't believe, I won't believe. People who doubt don't want to doubt. Frequently they just find themselves caught um, in doubt and they can't get out of it. And and no amount of evidence is gonna overturn that. It doesn't change their mind. And it's, it's not because they refuse to believe, not always anyway, it's sometimes because they just can't get there uh, with their hearts. Which means that doubt is rooted in the heart as much as it's rooted in the intellect. It's a brief summary of what we said last week and by now you're thinking, well then what took you so long? <laughs> well, I don't know. The, the, doubt is like a disease. It's, 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 it's not the absence of faith. Let me say that again. Doubt isn't the absence of faith. Please, please, please. Because if we call it the absence of faith, nobody in church will admit to it. Because we know we're supposed to have faith. And so the moment you say, well, do you doubt? It's like saying... Uh, I don't have faith in that. I don't believe that. And we're afraid because this is a church. You're supposed to believe everything, anything they tell you anyway. And so you just don't want to go there. But if you see doubt more of a disease that faith has, then you would say, I mean, it's possible to have faith, but the faith that you have has a disease. It's weakened. And now that we're talking about Diseases. Most of us have walking pneumonia when it comes to faith and doubt. I mean, we have just enough doubt to have the symptoms of it, but not enough to keep us from acting like a Christian or going to work. Think of it. We can still come to church. We can still do what Christians all do because we have walking pneumonia. We're not incapacitated by our doubt. (laughs) Are you with me? I'm already having fun, and you look like you're lagging behind. Somebody said I need to tell more jokes at the beginning. I don't have any. And I don't make them up well, so you have to stay with me on this. So if you want to know whether you have doubt, you must never ask yourself. You'll never admit it. Of course, you're a Christian. You wouldn't do that. You have to look for symptoms. Because like any disease, it has symptoms. And the way to find it is to look at the symptoms and say, what is the cause of those symptoms? Now, one of the symptoms of doubt is fear. The Bible never says, what are you afraid of? Because the Bible, frankly, doesn't care. The Bible is interested more in why you're afraid than in what you're afraid of. It wants to get to the root of your fear. Because until you deal with the root of your fear, you will always find something new to be afraid of. Right now, the top five fears in the country are the fear of flying, the fear of Public speaking, the fear of clowns, the fear of intimacy, and the fear of dying, which means more people would rather die than preach. That's how I interpret it anyway. And on some days, I would too. On some days, you'd rather I would, too. And more people would rather die than be intimate. Now, that's just weird. But you see, until you deal with the root of your fears, you will bounce from one thing to the other because you've not dealt with the disease. And the Bible does not give us an arm length of diseases. It only gives us a couple, and one of them is doubt. It says, in effect, that wherever there is a slight crack in your faith, and it goes under pressure, that crack will start coming apart. And as it comes apart, you will become more and more afraid. Now, Here's an example. In uh, Matthew chapter uh, 9 or in Mark chapter 4, Jesus' disciples are in the boat. You know this story. And Jesus is in the boat as well. They're out on the Sea of Galilee. A storm comes up and they look around. And Now remember, these guys are fishermen. They've been in boats before. They're used to storms. They know what happens when you don't anchor things quickly. And this one is apparently beyond their ability to anchor it And the first thing they do is they turn to Jesus and they say, Teacher, don't you care that we drown? Now, in Matthew, there's a different question. What they say in Matthew is, Lord, save us. This is not that question because the way they say it in Mark is almost some kind of an accusation on the teacher. Do you hear what they're saying? They're not saying, Lord, we're going to drown, save us. They're saying, Lord, teacher, what is your problem? Don't you care that we drown? This is more of a statement of character of the teacher. Why? If you doubt the teacher... You will be afraid to the very degree that you doubt him. You either doubt his ability to calm the storm or you doubt his ability to care whether you make it or not. But whatever the amount of doubt becomes the amount of your fear. So Jesus says, why are you afraid? Why do you still have no faith? What's he doing? He's attaching the fear that they have in the boat To doubt. I mean you look at it and say, no, 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 this is not about faith and all church stuff. Look around you, man. This is a storm. This ain't religion. They're afraid. Not only because of their experiences with storms in the past, but because up to this point, they lack an experience with the one in the boat. Let me say that again. They're afraid because they doubt. They don't doubt their knowledge of storms. They're fishermen, they're experts on this. They doubt the one who is with them in the boat. And to the degree that you doubt him, Your fears are going to rise. So what are you afraid of? No. Why are you afraid? In Mark's gospel, Mark was a disciple of Peter. The idea is that Mark and Peter were really tight. Mark was not a disciple of Jesus, didn't walk with him. Peter did. So Peter discipled Mark, and he told Mark everything that happened while he was with Jesus. And the, the story is the year after Peter was executed, Mark wrote his gospel. And the way Mark finishes his gospel is this kind of weird, sudden, abrupt ending because he has a target in mind. What he says was, on Easter morning, the disciples uh, were still uh, back in their houses, but three women went to the tomb, and when they were on their way to the tomb, they had a conversation. What he said literally is, they kept asking themselves, who is going to roll away the stone from the tomb? Now, we have no reason to know this. We don't really care what they were asking themselves, except that Mark is probably trying to show us the difference between what they expected and what they actually saw so they're on the way to the tomb saying we have been to funerals before we were there two days ago when Joseph put the body inside the tomb it's at the end of chapter 15 we watched Joseph roll the stone in front of the tomb and whenever this happens we know what happens the person inside stays inside the stone doesn't ever get moved so they're asking themselves as they go along you guys we got to deal with the stone who's gonna deal with the stone And when they get to the tomb, they notice that the stone has already been moved away. I'm going to talk about this in a couple of weeks. There's only one or two people could have moved that. Either somebody inside or somebody outside. And there's a world of difference between the two. Hold on, we'll get there in a couple weeks. (laughs) So they notice that the stone has been rolled away and whoever was inside is no longer inside because it says when they went inside, they looked and there was a young man. I love that part. He's dressed in white. Not sure about that part. He's sitting on the right-hand side and when they see him, they are alarmed. The word literally means they're rattled with fear. And the first thing the guy says to them is, don't be afraid. (laughs) Right. This happens all the time, doesn't it? He says, I know that you were looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. You're right about that. But he is risen. He is not here. Look at the place where they laid him. And then go tell his disciples that he is going ahead of them into Galilee. There they'll see him. And this is the place where Mark just should have said, somebody sing the benediction. But he doesn't do this. He says, and the women turned and they fled from the tomb. For terror and amazement seized them. And they said nothing to no one, for they were afraid. Okay, now somebody pray the benediction. That's an awful ending. I don't want to pray after that. I say, you pray. You're the one that just ruined the sermon. You pray. So what you have is, you have these disciples, these women rather, going into this tomb and they go from being shocked, where is the body, to being almost mystified, he's not here, he's out there somewhere, you might run into him. To being caught somewhere between trembling and ecstasy. The word terror is a Greek word that means they are trembling. And the word amazement is the Greek word that means ecstatic. Only when the Greeks used it, they meant they were incapacitated. You were in a trance when you saw something. So you think of yourself in a scary movie, right? You're watching, watching. Bam! Someone jumps out, and you go, ah! "It's that moment. The end." This is important. Because most of the time we have this kind of, you know, victorious ending of how Jesus rose again. And the women went in, they looked and they went, He's alive! Somebody call Chris Tomlin and have him write a song. This is not what happened. Mark says, What happened was. They were told not to be afraid, and they left afraid. And he told them, go tell this to his disciples, and they said nothing to anyone. And they were supposed to believe, but they doubted until the very last minute. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, it is always doubt, doubt, doubt that is in the disciples' way. They are always terrified because they are doubting. Jesus calms the storm, and they're terrified afterwards. (laughs) Right fear, wrong timing. Jesus walks on the water, they're terrified. Jesus is walking to Jerusalem, those who follow him are frightened. So so throughout the gospel, you look and you say, man alive, do these disciples never get over their fear and you get to the end of the gospel and here is the moment that turns the entire world on its head. It means it's a brand new day and you should be walking out of there busting that gospel and you walk out too afraid to say anything to anybody. The end. Nobody knows why Mark stopped his gospel here. As I said, in your Bibles, you tried to fix it. They came back later and they said, this can't end that way. No, 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 we got to wrap this up. So they started adding about 10, 11 other verses. So your Mark chapter 16 goes through verse 20. But if you have a certain kind of Bible... Uh, It'll say that those last, you know, 11, 12 verses are not in the original manuscript. It is believed. That is, some of the early manuscripts don't have those verses. And so they've come up with theories. What happened to the ending of Mark? And some people say, they lost the last page. I'm not making this up. I'm just making it simple. They said, it was all there, and then some dude lost the last page. Well, the problem is, if it was written on a scroll, how do you lose the last page? <laughs> and so then someone said, I'm not making this up. I'm really not. I couldn't make this up. Someone said, it is believed that rodents or vermin like ate it, the last page. But if they did, these are some of the most sanctified mice I've ever seen because they cut this thing off brilliantly right at the end of verse 8. So they had a meeting. They must have had a meeting. And under the anointing, they just must have said, I think we stop eating here. Right? And you are left with just verse 8. There is, of course, another theory. I think this is it. It is believed that when Mark wrote his gospel, he wrote it, as I said, the year after Peter was executed. It is believed that the year that the gospel was first read to the church, everybody didn't have their own copies. It was read aloud in little caucuses all over the countryside because there was no church. I mean, you can't think of the church. You guys, please... You can't think of the church in Mark's day as a megachurch with a super dynamic pastor. You have to think of a group of small clusters that are meeting under the radar because they are afraid for their lives. It is believed that when Mark wrote this gospel, the first people to hear it were suffering under the persecution of Nero. Nero was a first century tyrant who was out of his mind. And that's putting it kindly. He was an actor, a bad one, but because he was an emperor and he kept wanting to act, he forced people to go to his plays and tell them how good he was. So it's like, well, it's either you're good or we die. You're great. We love you, man. He persecuted Christians in retaliation for the political power he was losing. His closest allies were starting to eat his feet politically. And the way he retaliated was he targeted what he considered the weakest among them, and those were the Christians. And he started blaming them for a lot of the woes, not just the fire, but a lot of the woes that happened in Rome because of that. And so if you look around the world right now, please, please stay with me. If you look around the world right now and you see what ISIS is doing to Christians everywhere... If you see what Boko Haram is doing to Christians in Africa right now, you have a real good picture of what it was like to be a Christian under Nero. In the last year that we've been watching, more than 300,000 people who were Christians have been moved from their homes in Iraq because they were Christians for no other reason than they were Christians. They were displaced. This is a massive exodus, never to go home again. We are watching what some have said the greatest slaughter of Christianity at one time in the last 100 years. What I just told you was this is a historic moment to be watching what's happening for all the wrong reasons, but it's a historic moment. We are no longer taking Christians and putting them in prison and killing them slowly on the installment plan we are going into schools in Kenya and with one question, deciding who lives and who dies. We are going through villages, watching them go through villages in Africa, and on one question, they slaughter. So we're watching Christians now be persecuted around the world. And the only reason I bring that up is to say, that's the first audience who got this gospel. This is America. We don't have that problem. But since I was a child I have I have slowly watched what I call a culture of intimidation rise in the America that I grew up in Um, 20 years ago Stephen Carter the Harvard law professor wrote a book called the culture of disbelief and his point in the book was that it was now unpopular in America to subscribe wholeheartedly to any belief any religion particularly Christianity and from, That was 20 years ago, and, and from that, you've seen a steady rise of a culture of intimidation. So, almost every week, you'll watch some church or some Christian leader be lampooned by the media or by the television to be characterized as either a predator as, or an imbecile. And the same media right now, who has consistently lampooned Christians, are now just now coming on the forefront and wondering why Christians are being persecuted around the world. We are being held to the fire by intellectual bullies, by courts who will not let prayers be had in certain places by college professors, often in secular universities, who seem to take great delight in undermining some young person's religious faith while they bow at the shrine of their own intelligence. This happens More and more and more. And the only reason I bring this up is to say that while in America we are not being prosecuted or persecuted, we are watching the tensions in our culture get stiffer and stiffer that deal with religion. And I don't know, is it because our country can't decide whether they want to be secular or religious. So are we a secular country that tries to be religious, or are we really a religious country that's trying to act secular? And so whenever the subject of religion comes up, there is a stiff resistance to it. I mean, you, I think you know what I'm talking about, don't you? You're not moving. I'm assuming you know what I'm talking about. You go in any other country, almost, except the closed ones, and pray with someone and you can do this in public in just about anywhere. Try doing that in a public place in America and you feel like you have to pull people aside. Now the only reason I'm belly aching like this, I know that's how it sounds to you, is that Mark writes his gospel to people like us. And what he seems to say is, these women went into the tomb. They were asking themselves, we know how this ends. Who's going to move the stone? And when they got there, the stone had already been moved away. Somebody was loose. They had the resurrection to their back. When they fled from the tomb, they were caught between two fears. One was the fear of the one that just got out of that tomb and the other one was the fear of the people who would hold them in scrutiny if they said a word. They were caught between two fears and these women are leaving the tomb with all of the evidence at their back. They are the first witnesses. They are seeing what everyone will see in plain sight if they just live long enough. And they walk out. And they said nothing. Now if you're in a little tiny Bible study somewhere in a hold-up country, and you know that you could go to the market tomorrow and never come back, and you are scared out of your mind, You read Peter's story. These women, remember them? They were told to not be afraid, and they were afraid. They were told to tell everyone, and they told no one. You are left asking the question, what should they have done? I mean, I get the fear. What should they have done? And that's why I think Mark ends his gospel right there. He wants us to kind of lean into that moment and say, are you going to walk out of here and do what they did? Or are you going to walk out of here and finish it differently? How's it going to end? Because you're writing it right now in your day. You have the same kind of resistance. It's not as violent, but the resistance is every bit as strong. The intelligentsia is every bit as stacked against you. There are all kinds of reasons to not believe what you say you saw. Are you still going to say it? Or are you going to back down? And I guess that's the question that I'm asking us this morning, isn't it? What is it that you still believe that you will not say because of a culture of intimidation? What did you used to say that you will no longer say because you know the culture you live in? What have you let go of in terms of your fervor and your belief that the first century Christians still held on to? Because since the day you were born, there has been a relentless beating on your faith. Where have you just said to yourself, I'm just going to lay low. You see, in a culture of intimidation, we will still hold to our right to have religious beliefs, we'll hold to them tenaciously, but we'll also keep them under the radar, and we'll try to be as inconspicuous as we can. In a culture of intimidation, you will still believe stuff, but you will not try to convince anyone else to believe it. Because it is, as Newsweek magazine reported, an act of intellectual terror to try to convert someone of another religion. And when you grow up in a culture like that, you tend to minimize that edge that your faith normally has. And you tend to say to yourself, the faith that I have is my faith and it is a private faith. What you don't know is any faith, any faith that is a private faith is a weak one. I'm glad it's helping you. It just isn't helping the world. It just isn't helping the world. Now, if you think that I'm here to mount up an army to go out and win a bunch of people for Jesus, I'm not. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, if you should suffer for doing what is good, if you should suffer for doing what is good, do not fear like they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone for the hope that lies within you. But, Do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior may be ashamed of their slander. When you go out with a faith that is viral, we go out with a boldness, but we go with an integrity. We have a boldness that says, I can give an answer for the hope that lies within me. So when I am asked, I have a coherent case that I can give that makes sense. And I'm not afraid to say it in the hardest of places. But when I have integrity, it means that I have a lifestyle that's worth imitating. That when people look at my mouth and they look at my life, they line up. You see, what I think we have today in our religious culture is people that have boldness, but they don't have integrity. They talk too much. They don't read enough. They don't listen to the questions. They're just there to vent their religious views. People want answers, not sermons. And all they have are shallow sermons. But they do not have lives of intellectual integrity or behavioral integrity. And we have people like me, like some of you, who have lives of integrity, but we are not bold where we should be bold. I did not say we run people over. I said there are opportunities for a reason, for the hope that lies within us, and we are not bold in those places. We have become too personal about a faith that was intended to get loose on the world. So the call from Peter and the answer to the women is for an army of quiet peaceful lives of consistency that are conspicuous. They're conspicuous to the rest of the world. And then when they ask, we have an answer. I hear Peter say, don't be afraid. The one that you thought was dead is alive. The stone that you thought was there has been moved. Peter would go on only six weeks later. Six weeks later. To stand in front of the very Jews who intimidated him on the day of Pentecost. You know what he said? He said, men of Israel, listen to this. This man Jesus whom you crucified with the help of wicked men, God has raised him to life. And God has made him both Lord and Christ. (laughs) When I read that, I went, holy cow! Which is Greek for, that's unbelievable. (laughs) Six weeks after He's caught between two fears. Peter stands up in front of the other fear and says, let me tell you what God has done. He's not obnoxious. He's not belligerent. He's not pushy. He doesn't even give an invitation. He just says, this is what God has done. We have to deal with this reality. This is the kind of people that God is sending into the world. He then puts his back to the tomb, and with the entire resurrection behind him, he starts saying things that nobody believes, but they will believe in the day when Christ makes everything clear. He starts saying things way in front of the public because he knows he is on the front end of history. He is no longer trailing it. And this is exactly what he's calling us to do. Some of you came this morning, and you are too timid. And this is a word from the Lord to say, be bold. There are things that have happened to you, and you cannot prove. You want to say them, but you're afraid of the culture. Say them anyway. You can be an unlearned and ignorant person and not be afraid of the intelligentsia. You can have a family with children and still not be afraid of the courts. You can say things that you cannot prove and still end up right. Say them and say them with boldness.